Welcome to the Hardwick Evangelical Church Weekly Podcast. Every so often as we're preaching, we um, do what we call a holy habit. We talk about a holy habit, um, a practice that we might want to put in our lives, maybe that we don't do enough, or something that we do, um, and we just want to perhaps explain it or, or think about it again, reflect on it. And this morning, <clears throat> we're going to talk about communion. And so... I thought, well, what better to do than to take a walk through the gospel accounts of the Last Supper and, um, and then a couple of references uh, in 1 Corinthians. So we're going to walk through these. We're going to look at Matthew, then Mark, then Luke. I'll give you the references as we go through and just see what was happening and what, what is communion and, you know, Why? Why do we do this? So, starting in Matthew 26 and um, verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations to eat the Passover? It's interesting, isn't it? When we talk about the disciples, very often we think of the 12 disciples. Um, But, you know, when Jesus sent out 70 disciples to go and evangelize, he didn't have to go and, and, you know, ring a friend, come on, bring bring somebody, go and look for somebody. They were there. They were there with him. So he had a big entourage of disciples, not just the 12. Um, Later on, after he has died and risen again, there are 120 disciples (coughs) locked in a room for fear of the Jews. Jesus had a big entourage of people, of his disciples, who followed him around. Um, And uh, so here we know that the disciples, but we don't know which or how many disciples, asked him uh, where he wanted them to make preparations to eat the Passover. And he replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. So what we know is that out of all those disciples, there were twelve and Jesus reclining around a table. And as we've said before, there would have been others in the room, families, other disciples in the room, but only the twelve and Jesus were around the, reclining around the table where they uh, had the food, their food put there. Okay. Um, while they were eating, he said truly... Oh, I'm not going to talk about the betrayal. Um, while they were eating, verse 26, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
All right, we'll move on to Mark's account. Uh, Mark 14 and starting with verse 12. I'll just pick out a few bits here. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, say to the owner of the house, he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where my, I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So actually, out of those disciples who came and asked him what they should do, he sent two of them off to go and make preparations. I doubt if they did it all themselves. I imagine that they organised it and said, you know, you cook this, you do that, you do the other. And uh, that's probably how it worked. When evening came, verse 17, Jesus arrived with the twelve. They were reclining at the table eating. And then he talks about being betrayed. Then in verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, some manuscripts say the new covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Okay, let's look at Luke. Luke 22. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Okay, so now we know that the two who were sent are Peter and John. And they went to prepare the Passover. Um, and the next, the next bit's very similar. Then um, in verse 19, um, as, as they are eating, it says, He took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So what's going on in, these, um, in, in the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper? So it's a Passover meal. It's a meal where um, the Jews remembered that God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And um, it's a remembrance meal. Every part of it is highly symbolic of the escape of the Jews from Egypt. They're, they are remembering God's rescue of his people from slavery. And in the midst of that, in the middle of the um, meal... Jesus takes some bread, or towards the end of the meal probably, 
he took some bread and he broke it and he said this is my body broken for you now um, it was bread right but in a meal that is high where everything has great symbolism this bread now symbolized his body that was going to be broken for them for us for the world all right so it's not our teaching in this church that that bread actually becomes jesus body all right we, we see it as a symbol, just as everything else in the meal was a symbol, but a very important symbol. So this is a symbol of Jesus' body that is going to be broken in death for the forgiveness of sins. It's a sign of the new covenant, the new relationship that is going to happen, going to come about between God and people because of Jesus' death. Okay, so Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it and he passes it around and says, take, eat, eat. This is my body. Um, it is broken. It's the broken for you, given for you. Um, I think that's it. Okay, or given for many, I think is another one. So that's what's happening there. And then he takes a cup of wine, probably, um, and he says, this is, uh, take, uh, drink, this is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. Um, this is the blood uh, for the forgiveness of sins. So he's saying this, his death, when he talks about the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, it's talking about his death. His death that the disciples hadn't yet happened. It's going to happen. And he says it is done for this reason, for the forgiveness of sins. It's done for you. It's done for many. It's done to inaugurate a new relationship between God and people. That's only possible because of Jesus' death. And as Will was reading at the beginning, the, the, the law and the sacrifices were only a shadow of what was to come. They dealt with sin for a short while. Jesus' death de dealt with sin once and for all. We do not have to bear the consequences of um, our sin as we come to Christ and accept what he's done for us. Right, let's go to 1 Corinthians. One Corinthians eleven. Sorry, my bookmark has fallen out. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole scenario of what's happening here. I'm just going to look at the bits that specifically talk about what um, the Lord's Supper or communion is. All right? Because that would be another whole talk. <laughs> but what Paul says here is, in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink... So this is not Jesus talking now. This is now Paul talking. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's interesting, one of the things that, that Paul picks up there that, that is said in, in um, earlier is Jesus says, do this whenever you drink it. Right? So some people decide that, that that refers to just the Passover. And so some, in some churches they only take um, communion once a year because you celebrate Passover once a year and it's part of that meal. For other people, it's whenever we are meeting together, perhaps, that we, as part of our meal, um, do this, we break bread together. Some churches will break bread once a month, some will break bread once a week, um, some have services during the week to break bread. So it's not clear whether, you know, which one should do. Does it matter which one should do? I think probably not. But that whenever we come together um, in this way and break bread together, eat together, we can break bread and, and um, remember Christ's death. Now, the other thing that's really important, or another thing that's really important here, is I said that the meal, the Passover meal, is to remember God's action is of rescuing his people. It's all about, Passover is all about remembering what God's done. And Jesus then says, do this in remembrance of me. I imagine if the Pharisees were there, had been there, they would have shouted, blasphemy! We've got him now because he is claiming to be God. Um, And I, I think that's highly significant. That just as we remember what God did to rescue his people in history, in the past, now he's saying do this to remember him because he was just about to rescue the world from the consequences of sin. His death, in his death, he conquered sin. In his death, by his death, he conquered the powers of evil and set us free. And so Paul says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so when we um, take communion, we're proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes again. And I think we're not just proclaiming it to each other or anybody else who happens to be in the room. I think we're proclaiming it to the, the heavenly powers as well. And just reminding them, actually, they're defeated. So there's that. We're remembering what Jesus did. We're proclaiming what Jesus did. And then we turn back, just a page in my Bible, um, to 1 Corinthians 10. Paul is talking about, um, well, he's he's talking about not eating uh, meat that's sacrificed to idols. But he's talking in verse 16 about um, what we call communion. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? 
because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. I think that language of participation in is a bit... You have to get your head around that. He's saying that we are sharing in the death of Christ when we take communion. It doesn't mean that we're dying um, or we're going to die right now or anything like that. It means that we are sharing in what Jesus achieved through his death. We are the beneficiaries, if you like, of what Jesus did on the cross. We are sharing, and we are sharing that as a body. We are sharing in the benefits of what Jesus did. So when we take communion, we are, in fact, from here, what it says, we are remembering Christ's death, we are proclaiming Christ's death, and we are sharing in his death. We are remembering Christ's death. We are proclaiming his death and we are sharing in his death. Amazing that we can do that. Amazing that Jesus has given us something, a constant reminder when we take these elements. We can remember again, consciously, intentionally, remember what Jesus did for us. Often in the New Testament, it came, uh, they took communion. They called it sometimes the Lord's Supper. They took it as part of a meal. And um, generally, that's, that's often not done around the world now. We, we've taken this bit <laughs> and kind of separated it from a meal. Um, I think that's okay. Um, I don't see that as a problem. Um, but we, we choose to remember to have this part to remember Christ's death. And so when we take communion, I think there's a lot going on. I don't think it's a... I think it is symbolic, right? Um, but I also think that as we take communion, we are, as it says, we are sharing in what Christ has done. And I feel that, that we are giving assent to God working in our lives. We're saying, yes, this is what we want in our lives. Now, the Bible doesn't say that, <laughs> but I think that's what we're, we're doing when we take it. We're, we're, becoming, we're taking part in this. So in a moment, we're going to take communion. Um, and, you know, we don't take communion lightly. And sometimes we have a specific time of confession beforehand. Sometimes we don't. Um, but I think that today, as we just reflect for a moment, let us reflect and bring all that's happened this week to God. We may, there may be things we want to say sorry to him for. There may be things that we want to kind of show him that we're really pleased about. Um, but let's take a moment to bring those things before God. Take a moment to listen to what he might be saying to us in that and to reflect on what we're going to do 
in a few moments when we take communion. Welcome to the Hardwick Evangelical Church Weekly Podcast. Reading from Jonah chapter 2, Jonah's Prayer. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord. And he answered me, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again on your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. One of the few places where we have the word vomit in the Bible. We sing lots of songs of victory in the church. Uh, Lots of joy, lots of enthusiasm. And that can make church unbearable for some people when they're going through bad times. Uh, In this church, we try not to make that mistake. We include songs of all different emotions, songs that encourage us in times of despair, in times of fear. Uh, Though sometimes I think some of those songs, they switch over to victory uh, a little bit too quickly. The songs in the Bible especially in the Psalms and also some other places like here in Jonah 2, they're more realistic. They deal with all emotions. Life isn't full of sunshine and health and happiness and victory over all the problems that we have. Uh, Life includes rain and unhappiness and the problems that we're hoping that we'll be able to overcome. If your life doesn't include any of those things, then... Pinch yourself now because you've already fallen asleep. Our lives have problems, and if they didn't, then the psalmist would have nothing to thank God for when he thanks God for his help. Mind you, we do have a pretty good life uh, compared to most of the world. Well, we've got enough food. In fact, usually the problem is we've got too much food. 
we've got enough clothes, we have to spend so much time thinking about what clothes to buy and what clothes to wear each morning. As you can see, I don't spend much time thinking about that. We have homes without leaking roofs, without large vermin. Uh, we don't have many power cuts. We have medicines for illness. We have machines for disabilities. We have the internet for communication contact. We're better off than the vast majority of the world. But don't worry, we can still find things to complain about and things to be afraid of. But Jonah wasn't like us. He wasn't afraid of anything. He wasn't afraid of disobeying God even, who'd given him a message for the Ninevites. He wasn't afraid of setting sail, which is quite strange for a Jew. They were land-loving people. They didn't go on the sea. And when a storm blew up, he was asleep in the bottom of the boat, like Jesus was in the storm. He wasn't afraid. And when the sailors asked, what should we do? He said, throw me overboard. That'll fix your problems. <laughs> he doesn't seem to have been afraid. Jonah didn't care about his life, though the sailors did. They rowed harder. They threw more things over, overboard. But eventually the storm got so bad, they had to throw him in. And then the storm stopped. Jonah wasn't afraid to preach the gospel to people who had no understanding of Israel's God. He converted all those sailors. They, they weren't praying to their gods anymore afterwards. They were all praying to Jehovah, the God of the Jews. And Jonah wasn't afraid of the Ninevites. We'll find out. Here's the secret. He does actually preach to them. He wasn't afraid to do that. Mind you, Jonah should have been afraid. He should have been very afraid of the people who lived in that Assyrian capital of Nineveh. Their armies conquered anyone that they chose to fight, and they loved fighting. They gradually swept across the whole of the uh, ancient Middle East, uh, conquering everyone, and they would soon reach Israel. Uh, they didn't follow any kind of Geneva Convention or any rules at all in their fighting, as far as I can see. They didn't take any prisoners. Uh, if the people that they met were weak, they killed them. If they were strong, they took them as slaves. Their preferred method of execution was impalement. They liked to leave flags of dead bodies so that anyone who came across knew that you don't mess with Nineveh. And they didn't bother with chains and ropes to pull their slaves along or to whip them into line. They just put a hook through their top lip, attached a piece of string, and walked away. And the slaves followed. Now, they found this method was much more effective, less tiring, and more importantly, more painful. Now, those pictures up there, they aren't pictures made by the enemies of the Ninevites to show how nasty they were. Those pictures are made by the, their own artists because they loved to celebrate how effectively cruel they were. And these pictures weren't on show in a slave camp to make sure that you remember that if you go out of line, you, what the punishment's likely to be. They were put on show, well, they're now on show in the British Museum, but they were found 
on the walls of the dining room in the king's palace. They, instead of surrounding themselves with pictures of beauty, they preferred cruelty. This was a violent and immoral society that boasted of their cruel conquests of others. Uh, terribly wicked things like that don't happen quite like that today. Though there are still terrible things happening. Did you hear of the Brazilian crime gang that tied hostages onto their getaway cars so that the police wouldn't shoot at them and then drove off at speed with those hostages tied on and, and clinging on as well? Or you've all heard of a policeman who arrested a young lady and then raped and killed her. Or the man in America who had girls locked up in his basement for years. One day they will face proper judgment. At the throne of God, they won't find mercy. Unless they repent. And which of us doesn't secretly hope that they won't repent. Would you accept the job as a prison chaplain and then go and try and tell them about Jesus? I think you, I, would find something else, anything else better to do. And that's what Jonah was afraid of. He was afraid that he was going to take this message to Nineveh and they would repent. He wasn't afraid of what they might do to him. He was afraid they might listen to him. And then God would relent and not destroy those terrible Ninevites. So what did he do? What would you do in that situation? Well, you have to find out in the next chapters because, of course, you haven't read them yet. But in the meantime, Jonah's okay. Jonah is fine. He's away out of it, and uh, he's not going to have to face that terrible problem. Though, of course, um, oh, th this, is, this is Jonah's view. We don't know what the big fish looked like from the outside, but this is what it looked like on the inside. Jonah was at rock bottom. Actually, he's at sea bottom, of course. But he's, he's not unhappy about it. Of course, he's not really happy either. He's resigned himself to his fate. He tells himself, okay, I'm dead now. There's lots of death language in this chapter, in this psalm, the songs he sings. He describes his situation as being in the realm of the dead, or in Sheol in Hebrew. That's the, the place for the dead underworld. It's uh, where you're waiting for judgment. And verses 3 and 5, He's in the depths, he's in the deep, and they're both used of the underworld as well in the Psalms. Or he says in verse 4, I'm banished from your sight, which is very similar to the way in which Paul describes hell as being shut out from the presence of the Lord. In verse 6, he's in the pit, which is often the place of the dead in Job and in Psalms. Now, these words don't really mean hell like we do, because this is before Judgment Day. This is just the waiting place where the dead go, waiting till Judgment Day, which is when they get sorted. And in the New Testament, we read that those who die in Christ are asleep 
till that time. So that's not a, a bother. But Jonah wasn't expecting to be asleep, but he too wasn't that bothered about it because he knew he wouldn't be staying. He's expecting to go to God's temple, he says. In verse 2, you listen to my cry. In verse 9, salvation comes from the Lord. In verse 2 again, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will again look towards your holy temple. Now, that's strange, because Jonah is living in direct disobedience of God. He knows that God doesn't, gives orders and he should be obeying them, and he wasn't. He should be expecting God to punish him instead of letting him go to heaven. And yet he speaks as though he will see God in his temple, either on earth or in heaven. We have to assume that Jonah has repented and changed his mind. Jonah has decided he will do God's will, albeit reluctantly, though he's quite happy because <laughs> he can't now, can he? We'll see next week what does happen. So have you ever been down in those sort of depths that Jonah went down into? Because it's a very common experience to suffer that sort of depression where everything is so bad, it feels like you're dead, it feels like death would be easier. It's terrible. And it's so bad for 10% of the population that they need medical help with depression. You could reach out and touch someone now who will need a doctor's help with depression. And at such times, a poem like Jonah says in the, in the depths might be exactly what expresses what you need. So he's not minimizing the pit he's in. He's not saying, oh, well, you know, it's okay. He knows how deep he's sunk. And he speaks as though his best hope is death. Because there's no word of rescue, no word of life in this chapter. But significantly, he knows that God will accept him, even after he's disobeyed God. He's sorry for it, and he knows he should have acted differently. And most importantly, he knows God does forgive those who ask for forgiveness. And the worst thing about depression is the way it isolates you. It isolates you from absolutely everyone. Even those who are closest to you, they seem to be separated by an invisible barrier. And if they insist on trying to get close to you, insist on trying to comfort you, you, push, you just push them away. Depression is the ultimate loneliness, and even God appears to be shut out from you. When you pray, your prayers bounce off the ceiling. And Jonah's answer is the only one I know to remember that actually, despite everything that, that, seems, that seems to be telling you the contrary, God is there. Remember the fact that God is there. It doesn't feel like he's there, but Jonah remembers worshipping him in the temple, and he says to himself, I will meet God again. I will worship him like I did in the temple. It will happen. And even if it doesn't happen in this life, it will happen in eternity. But the cruelest thing is that while you're feeling like that, while you're feeling isolated from God, he's even closer to you than at any other time. That's when he's carrying you, as in the footprints poem. You have to 
ignore what you feel and remember that fact. Fight the feelings with facts. Fight the fears with facts. God is there. And those people around you, they do love you. And God will rescue you from this. Now, I, I'm pleased to say I only know about that sort of depression from observation. Uh, not from experience. Uh, I've had a few periods when I've been down, but not that down. But I've seen what real depression is an awful lot. I've seen depression in others a great deal because of my own Jonah experience. Uh, I haven't been down to the pits, but I have been to Tarshish, to Tarshish Medical School. When I became a Christian as a teenager, my schoolmates ribbed me. He said, ah, Dave, you're going to become a priest, are you? Ah, maybe you're going to be a monk. Yeah. And I go, of course not, of course not. No, 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 no. And those denials set me against a course which I suspect that God wanted. I was interested in medicine. I was interested especially in psychiatry. And that's in particular what I studied for. And I sent, set off for Tarshish Medical School. But I wasn't watching God's signposts. Yeah, that innocent little boy went off, left home. On the way, I went to a conference, uh, which was occurring for a couple of days before the first term started. I, I took a tent so as I wouldn't have to pay the residential fees. And uh, so in the evening, I went to go and find somewhere to camp. And I found a, a nice flat spot at the bottom of a cliff. And uh, it was in a sort of um, gorge, uh, so it was away from the noisy wind, which sort of keeps you awake at night in a tent. That night was the biggest storm of the decade. <laughs> and all the other people in the conference who knew I'd gone off with my tent, they were worried about me. And in the morning they went, Dave, you're all right, you're all right. And I go, well, why? What's the matter? My spot had been so sheltered, I didn't even know there'd been a storm. When I got to university, I was a day early, and uh, I, the, the accommodation wasn't open, so I had to camp again for one night. And I found a lovely quiet spot by the side of a river, and I set up my tent and went for a walk. And then when I came back to my tent, I couldn't find it. It, I, it wasn't anywhere. And then I saw it, there it was, in the river. The river had risen and spread so, so much in just that one hour that now my tent was mostly underwater. So I waded in and pulled it out. And oh, I spent a miserable night there in the rather cold. It is, is one of the books I had with me. It's, you still see the watermarks. I just couldn't get, couldn't get the water out of it. Ah, oh, it's terrible. And I, I should have thought about what I was experiencing. I should have thought about what God was gently pointing out to me. In, at the conference, everything went unexpectedly smoothly. And that conference concerns the evangelism of Jews. And then when I camped at a lovely spot by the medical school, disaster happened. And, and what was the book I was reading? It's a, a Hebrew and English book of Psalms. Even there, God was pointing at me, prodding me, pushing me away from medicine 
And I wasn't listening. I just carried on in the wrong direction. And in the first year, I failed almost all my exams. I've always been good at science, but I failed them all. In the second year, I failed even more exams. In fact, I failed so many, I had to resit that year. Altogether at university, I sat down and counted them up once. I failed 40 exams, not 14, 40 exams. Most people don't take that many at university level. I failed that many. And uh, they decided that I shouldn't continue. Hmm. Well, would you want me as a GP? <laughs> uh, during those studies, I'd been a leader in the Christian Union. I'd been preaching in various churches. And the thought went through my head that perhaps I should change my direction and follow that path. And so after thinking about it, I became a social worker. And I was fired after about six months. Yeah, uh, so I did painting and decorating. Oh, I remember that day when I tipped a pot of paint, well, I, uh, and it went all over the floor. <laughs> Fortunately, the floor was just wood, so I painted the floor as well. But then um, I must have got some paint on my shoes because I walked footprints all over the dark blue carpet of this person's house. Were you overcome with emotion? <laughs> yeah, the, the, fortunately there was another uh, firm of painters there who um, told me the, the trick of how to get paint out of carpet, so which of course I can't tell you because it's a professional trick. Uh, I became a salesman. I sold burglar alarms and security equipment to uh, factories. Uh, I, during that time, I, was, <laughs> I went through about more than a dozen occupations. During that time, I was also preaching a lot more in local churches. And one day, the minister who arranged a lot of my preaching engagements, he said, look, Boyle, oh, I can't do a Welsh accent, but that's how he spoke, Boyle, one day you're going to go to ministerial college, so why not apply now? <laughs> okay, at the end of my first year in ministerial college, the principal called me to his office, and I thought, standing on the carpet in front of his desk. I've been here before. Clearly, I failed these exams too. Uh, but instead, he invited me to sit down, and he said, look, if you carry on like you're doing, you're going to get a first. And we've never had one of those in this college, so we'd rather like you to do that. And we'd like you to go and do university research instead of going to a church. And I said, no, 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 I made that mistake enough. I've already been down. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to avoid the ministry. And I said, no. The Lord's called me to the ministry, and I'm not going to deviate again. But he kept on and on. He wouldn't let me out of his office. He just said, no, 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 you this is really important, and you must go and do this. And you should go and do a research degree. And I said, look, okay, I'll do a deal. I'll only go and do a research degree if... I get three things. First, I do get that first-class degree. <laughs> That's very unlikely. No one had ever done that before. This was in the days before the um, inflation in degrees. And I'll only go if I get government funding. Uh, that was available to just a, a few of the top firsts in the country. Now, I'll only apply to Cambridge because I thought I was, well, it's the most impossible place I could think of. Yeah, well, you know what happened, don't you? And, and looking back, 
I, I, I wonder if God had to humiliate me so much at that point where I was just failing, failing, failing and then thrown out and absolutely everything I did went wrong. And then I remembered a prayer I prayed. I'd always been prone to big-headedness and occasionally felt convicted about that. And in some fit of enthusiasm, I prayed that God would break my pride. Uh, we used to sing a song in the old days, uh, break me, melt me, mold me, fill me. And back in my student flat, thrown out of the university, where all my mates were going off to lectures, and of course I had nowhere to go, I remembered this. But I didn't think it was sufficient explanation for all that I'd gone through. God could have pushed me in the other direction, and that's when I realized he had been pushing me, and I had been rebelling. I'd not just been slow to follow God's guidance, I was just running in the opposite direction. Same as Jonah. He didn't just fail to go and do God's will. He ran in the opposite direction and had to be hauled back in a very violent and physical way. So I can testify that the Lord isn't just merciful, he has a sense of humor. I can see now that the tragic comedy of the book of Jonah shows that. The Lord loves us, and usually, instead of anger, he expresses humor at our stubbornness. Because where can we run from him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do love us and you want us to follow your way, but you, you just prod us. You don't haul us in. Thank you, Father, that you are gentle with us. Help us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about Hardwick Evangelical Church, please click the website link in our bio.